this week on the Back Table Podcast. Like I said, they bought it for the endo guys and it happened to be at the surgery center and I think there was an issue with it. And so I was like, oh, we have the fill. I'm like, okay, let's try that and try that. Because I'd heard from some other people that it, it worked pretty well. And um, once you go to Thulum, you'll never go back, I don't think. I think it's pretty exceptional. I've talked to some colleagues and they're like, yeah, you know, it's good, you know, just good. And I was like, I don't know what planet you're on. To me, it's the worlds of difference. I think it works exceptionally well for this indication. So I use it for all my upper tracks if I can. Hello, everyone, I will come back to Backtable Urology Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Backtable.com. This is Jose Silva as your host this week. I'm happy to introduce our guest, Dr. Patrick O'Malley. He is currently Associate Professor at the University of Florida Department of Urology and Chief of Urology Oncology. He completed residency at the University of Toronto in Canada. He completed his Urology Oncology Fellowship at the Will Cornell Medical College in New York, where he was awarded the Ferdinand C. Valentine Fellowship Award. Patrick, welcome to Backtable. Hey, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. So Patrick, tell us about your practice. Uh, I, I know you do a lot of cancer. You're the kidney guy, or one of the kidney guys up there in, in University of Florida in Gainesville. Just go over what you do. What my day-to-day is. Exactly. So I do a lot of bladder and quite a bit of upper tract urothelial carcinoma, as well as uh, a lot of renal cell and some testicular. And I try and do as little prostate as possible. <laughs> so Patrick, so early 2023, finally, there was guidelines for upper tract urothelial carcinoma, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it was long overdue. And I think uh, a lot of people were happy to see that. Yeah. We had other type of cancer, but urothelial seemed, or upper tract seemed forgotten. I will finally, they came in. So let's talk about, I mean, probably get a lot of referrals, but what's the initial presentation or usual presentation of these patients? Yeah, so being a referral center, a lot of patients we see, uh, many can be sent in. But usually, you know, these patients are patients who've had upper tract imaging, most of them for gross hematuria, workups for microscopic hematuria. So most, certainly in the United States, seem to have CT scans with contrast. We'll see how that changes over time because the microscopic hematuria guidelines have changed a bit, which I think for good reasons. But most patients, it's usually on evaluation for those causes that they present and are found to have these issues. Exactly. You mentioned microhematuria, and I, I don't want to go into that, but definitely I think we were already doing cystoscopies in those patients. Yeah, I think we overdid our cystoscopies. I think we overdid CT imaging as well. You know, I think um, many other places that are sort of look at sort of cost for the value of care you get. You know, some nice imaging modeling studies done by uh, Jim Hugh, for example, looking at how much benefit is to do a CT scan over an ultrasound in some of these patients. And in the grand scheme, there really wasn't much. So I think we, being a little bit more judicious in who we use those imaging modalities in, which I think overall is a good thing. I mean, yeah, so you will expect if you have a, a thesis, your trilateral carcinoma in the ureter, there might be some hydro. So you're going to pick it up with the ultrasound, then maybe do a more imaging for that patient. Yeah. I mean, the vast majority of patients who have significant issues are going to have obvious signs, even if you have a non-contrast image or even if it's a CT, but it's not gotten, you know, a urogram or delayed phase. Most of the ones that you're really worried about, you're going to see, not always, but most of them. And what about a, a cystoscopy? Are you doing cystoscopy in all the patients with upper tract cancer? Yeah. Any patient gets referred in me for bladder cancer or upper tract, 
irregardless of if they've had a TRBT uterostomy, they all get cystoed when they come to see me. It's just, you know, if you're going to treat someone for upper tracts, you got to know what the status of their bladder is beforehand. So you manage it competently and there's no surprises. And so all those patients, I think you just have to scope them all. And patients that for some reason they cannot get contrast, are you doing imaging versus what other type of imaging are you doing? Or are you going straight into your troscopy in this type of patients that cannot get contrast? Yeah, so the ones who can't get CT contrast, I mean, there's been some recent data on contrast-induced nephropathy and then how the risk has probably been overplayed. So I think we can be a little bit more forgiven in who we give contrast to in that sense. And then you've got also with MRIs with the third and fourth gadolinium agents, you can get down to almost the level where the patients are on dialysis and still give them contrast. So I think that fixes a lot of the issues there. There are some obviously some differences with interpreting MR urograms versus a CT urogram. I mean, you have to be a little bit mindful of that. And then, you know, there's always the reliable retrograde polygrams. That in combination with an ultrasound or a non-con CT is usually pretty good and robust to look at the upper tracts in those patients that can get, you know, the contrasted CT or contrasted MRI. And in a patient that can get both, do you do the classic CTU or are you doing more MRIs? Yeah, I would do the classic CTU. It's easier, quicker, probably cheaper. And a lot of patients may not have a baseline anxiety or claustrophobia, but you put them in an MRI and it seems to come out in a lot more people than you'd suspect. True, true that. Let's talk about your cytology. Are you doing it on every patient with possible upper tract malignancy? Who do you order your cytology? So that depends on what you mean in sense of, you know, if a patient, like I said, comes in to me, they're going to get a cyst in the office. They automatically get a urine cytology. I usually don't do a void. I just do it at the time I do the cysto. And you can argue that one's better than the other, but that's debatable. I just do what's ease of workflow. If you're taking them to the OR, if they've had a negative cytology and you're convinced there's some high risk, then usually if you're going to go evaluate, say, the right collecting system because that's where the mass is, I will usually do a selective ureteric washing from that side. And I usually do that with like a, a five French open-ended catheter and I'll instill a saline as I run the catheter up the ureter and then I'll aspirate as I come back down. So it's almost like even by running that five French up, you're almost barbitaging the ureter. So I find that works pretty well. And do you see discrepancy between just the regular post-void urine versus that barbotouch? You can, yeah. Um, I have seen that. Yeah, and I mean, and the data would suggest that you have an improved yield with the barbitage and less risk for sort of contamination, prostatic urethral contamination, by using the open-ended catheter and doing the upper tract washing. You know, how clinically significant is it going to be? I think that's a little more debatable. But usually, I mean, I just do that as sort of standard practice. If I'm going to do a ureteroscopy, they're going to get a urine cytology from that side. And oftentimes, if someone's got, you know, positive void cytology, but a negative cysto, they're going to get bilateral washings and stuff like that. And in those patients that do get a uh, positive and you don't find anything, when you, <laughs> what happens when you don't have a gross mass or something like that? Yeah, so you're saying it's the, the case where you go in and you want to say, look at one side of the uh, one collecting system and you do a washing and you go up and you look in there and you don't find anything, but your cytology comes back as positive. Yeah. Well, I generally tend to risk stratify those patients. So, you know, if they've got heavy smoking history, if, if they fit the bill, then I'm going to probably keep a closer eye on them. There's reasonable data for things like blue light and stuff like that in the bladder and the lower tract. But even that said, you know, there's some recent studies, the recent one in England that showed that, you know, blue light didn't make as big of a difference as maybe we first thought. 
So most times I think if you really did a good job of looking and it comes back negative, you just sort of probably have to consider repeating the evaluation down the road, six to 12 weeks or something like that, and just seeing if anything pops up and just have a high index of suspicion and be a little bit cautious in those patients. So, so every three months, do something, you will do imaging as well, or just going in and, and take a look? If I'm suspicious, they might get repeat imaging. But if I'm going to go take a look myself anyways, they probably don't need the imaging as well. And I would do it at three months. And if it's negative, then I push it out further to six months. You know, you're not going to take that person to the OR for ureteroscopy every three months for the rest of their life. So you start pushing it out as you get further out. And if the repeat cytologies are negative, then I feel more confident in that. And in patients that you have a positive cytology, a positive CAT scan with a mass in the kidney or in the, in the ureter, how important is going in and getting a biopsy? I think it depends on who you ask okay. <laughs> um, and what country they practice in. So, you know, the AUA guidelines are very US-centric, right? And so I don't think there are really medical legal reasons for it. I think people, it's just the usual way of practicing to have a biopsy. If you look elsewhere in the world, like in Canada and in Europe, I don't know, actually in South America, but I imagine it's the same. It's that, you know, if it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, walks like a duck, it's probably a duck. And there is good data. There was a meta-analysis done that showed that, I think in eight out of 12 studies looking at this, there was an increase in bladder recurrences in those patients who had a biopsy prior to nephro-U. So, you know, it's not without its own cost. And sometimes with some of these patients, you know, you get rid of their upper tract disease and it's great. And the thing that ends up being a pain is the recurrences in the bladder. So anything you do that increase that risk, you know, if you didn't really need to do it, does it change your management? Probably not. So are we just doing extra work for no reason? And it also potentially delays them getting to the surgery that they really need. So I have a bit more leniency in that. I will tell you, most of my partners would say absolutely biopsy first. And then it comes down to as well as if you're someone who bleeds neoadjuvant chemo for those patients, is your medical oncologist going to treat just for the cytology or are they going to want a biopsy as well? And that varies, I think, from place to place. Yeah, I guess. I mean, if it's not going to change when I, when I train in Puerto Rico, if, if it's not going to change the type of surgery that you're going to do, maybe, like you mentioned, do you really need, need a delay, a definite treatment on this patient? Well, I mean, it's, it's a very interesting to me that the ARA guidelines on this say, oh, we should do a biopsy in this setting. And 85% of the time, it's diagnostic when you do a biopsy. But most of these cases, you already know what it is without doing a biopsy, right? But then when it comes to small renal masses and renal cell carcinomas, the diagnostic yield of a biopsy is much higher. The risk of it being a non-RCC is actually much higher. So, you know, 20, 25% small renal masses. And yet we're not mandating that on guidelines. So there's some discrepancy there between the two sort of guidelines and how people approach things. Good to know, good to know. So Patrick, what about Lynch syndrome? What do we need to know or, or when do we need to think about this as being part of it? Or, and does it matter in terms of that specific patient? Yeah, so I think maybe I'd say seven to 10 years prior to now, Lynch syndrome was like, okay, you know, be aware of this if they have a colon cancer kind of thing. And it would show up on a board exam or that sort of thing. The reality is it's, it's far more common than we probably suspected. In the other estimates, it's like seven to 20% of cases are actually potentially in syndrome. So I think in the last couple of years, you know, three or four years in particular, there's been a much bigger awareness of this, both from the urologist's point of view, the medical oncologist, and, and especially the pathologist as well. So I think we're a lot more in tune to realizing that, you know, hey, you know, this is something we should really keep in mind. Traditionally, the presenting age for these patients with Lindstrom is probably 10 years younger on average than most upper tracts. 
generally speaking, upper tracts is more male than female. It's probably a little more equivalent in Lynch syndrome. We all know sort of the colorectal association with Lynch syndrome, probably less aware of sort of ovarian endometrial, but there's, you know, the whole list of malignancies that go with Lynch syndrome. So I think we're a little bit more robust in our screening of what familial diseases patients' families may have. And then the pathologists are doing routine histological testing. It's not as sensitive, you know, germline testing and things like that, but it has been shown obviously to be more accurate than clinical history. So I think our pathologists are doing us a big favor by helping us pick these up more readily. And if we forget, they certainly don't. So it's becoming a much bigger aspect of our upper tract patient sort of disease management. And in those patients that, let's say, they already diagnosed with colon cancer, for example, and the family high history, what aggressive measures will you do in this patient? I mean, will you go in and do barbotage on, on each side or just uh, urine cytology, imaging? Yeah, I think that there are starting to be better sort of guidelines on this, and even some are becoming more sort of risk adapted based on the, the mutation that the patient may have. Most of these will involve cytology and upper tract imaging, and then the frequency of those can sometimes get dictated based on the mutation for that patient. But those are sort of baseline, the cytology and the upper tract imaging. And you mentioned the mutation. I mean, there are more than ones that are more aggressive. In those cases, you will do it every six months versus a year. Yeah, so they are more frequent to start with. And the uh, best source for those guidelines, because I always look it up depending on the things, is probably the CDC has some available for health professionals, and there are some NIH ones that have been published. But usually, yeah, if it's sort of the more aggressive variant or has a higher rate of incidence of upper tract, then you may sort of modify your imaging and the frequency of that based on that. And I asked you before, but is there any difference between CTU and MRU in these patients? So then, you know, that comes into sort of, I think, a lot of things with surveillance is cost, but also, you know, radiation exposure, right? So patients are presenting at younger ages than most upper tract patients. The layer of guidelines would say is low is reasonably allowable. So if you can decrease the amount of radiation by alternating with other imaging modalities, MRI or even ultrasound, it's probably not unreasonable. I don't think you have to worry about it because of kidney function most times unless they've had a prior upper tract, but it's not unreasonable to consider the MRI to decrease the radiation. But um, at the same time, most patients that age, that's probably not going to make a massive difference. And let's discuss risk stratification in these patients. You have the low risk, high risk, unfavorable. How does age stratification change and what are the options to these patients? Yeah, so it's kind of like going from a nephron-sparing approach to more radical treatments, possibly with systemic therapy, right? That's the sort of spectrum of therapies. And it's dictated initially by the grade of the biopsy, so low grade, high grade. And that puts you in a low risk, high risk, and then favorable and unfavorable. And those sort of risk stratifications, the favorable, unfavorable, are sort of based on, they're multifactorial. They're based on, you know, the cytologies, the imaging findings, even the ureteroscopic appearance, as well as, you know, is the bladder involved. And so when you start having, you know, multifocal lesions, evidence of obstruction on imaging, large nodes, right, that obviously shifts you from favorable to more unfavorable side of the spectrum. So there's this risk stratification that's basically initially based on grade and then the subsequent favorable unfavorable is based on those other factors that we routinely have for these patients. And for example, I mean, tumor ablation, who is a candidate for tumor ablation? So in the guidelines, the ideal patients for these are going to be the low risk, the favorable low risk patients. 
right? Those are the ideal candidates for this. But it's not unreasonable, and they say, you know, can be offered in sort of unfavorable low-risk patients and in rare cases of high-risk patients, right? And those would be sort of the more potentially imperative indications. So solitary kidney, but, you know, you got a unifocal, high-grade mass. Maybe it's reasonable to try an ablative treatment up front if you think you can render them disease-free and save that kidney. So the ablation treatments are considered in the guidelines for those patients. But again, as you move along that spectrum, there's more and more sort of caveats as to why you may or may not want to consider that. And in those patients that you might consider a tumor ablation, will you do the biopsy first or sometimes you will do it at the same time and do the ablation at the same time? Well, that's the thing, right? I mean, the stratification is based on the biopsy. So technically you can't because you won't have your biopsy result. That said, you know, you're not going to put someone through two anesthetics like that back to back just because if you're there, most people are going to treat it at that time if they think it is reasonable. And that, I think, comes a bit with experience and just sort of getting a sense of which ones look low grade, which ones look high grade. Is it multifocal? Is it single? You do most times have the upper tract imaging beforehand. So that oftentimes will help you ahead of time to know who you're more likely to do what in before you get in there. And in terms of the technique per se, I mean, when you're ablating a tumor, are you using laser? Are you going into the kidney and do a resection, like a PCNL? What does it entail? All of the above. Okay. <laughs> so the guidelines say, you know, whether you do anterograde or retrograde, both are reasonable. I think just convenience, we do retrograde most often. That said, I've had some patients who have bulkier disease and have imperative indications where they're like, I'm not having my kidney taken out and going to dialysis because my only kidney. And that's a difficult situation, particularly if they're younger, because those patients will say, look, if you get your kidney taken out, you're on dialysis for a couple of years, and then you can get a transplant. And that's the best from an oncological perspective. But it does mean being on dialysis. Now, if you're in your mid-late 70s, and I tell you that, you'd be like, why would I go on dialysis till I'm 80? You know, who's going to give me a kidney then? And it's like, well, you know, that's fair enough. But those bulkier tumors sometimes... Depending on the location, if you are comfortable or you have a radiologist that you can get your access, I usually do my own access for those, but you know, you can get that stick in, get your, uh, get your sheath in, and then you can put the, you know, TY resectoscope in there. You can do some, some nice work pretty quickly that way. I have one gentleman that I've done that a couple of years ago and he, I don't know how he hasn't progressed or had it recur, but he's done extremely well with that. So it can be a nice technique you can select patients. Most patients, you can access it retrograde. And if it's that big that you're not going to clean it all out, then you probably should have been thinking about taking a whole kidney in the first place. And in those patients that you do the anti-grade, can you contrast, I mean, I have never seen one and I, I haven't done it, but can you contrast doing a resection in the bladder versus the kidney in terms of what are you looking for when you're shaving the lining? Yeah, I mean... Perforating the renal pelvis is not a small thing to occur, right? And, you know, that's, that's a pretty major issue if that happens. And it's not thick like the bladder. So it is, you have to be a lot more cautious about it. I remember Indy Gill was one time a visiting professor in Toronto. He said, you know, sometimes you just have to widen your stance a bit. But you, you've got to be prepared to deal with the issues. But like I said, you can get a lot more tumor cleaned out very quickly that way. But you do have to be cautious. It's not like doing a TRBT. So you basically try to shave as smooth as possible and then cauterize whatever's left? Yeah, so it depends where it's located. If it's on the renal pelvis, you know, on the medial aspect, you got to be very close and you got to be very careful because you can shave it off, but you really can't go deeper. 
if it's more on the kidney side, you can go deeper, but you can also hit some bigger blood vessels if you're on that side. So there's no free shots. But this gentleman I had, he was more sort of on the parenchymal side. And so, you know, I was able to get a little deeper in that. But again, you just, you got to be mindful of what you're getting yourself into. And then when you do all these procedures, including a biopsy, a stent versus no stent. So in that case where I basically didn't go up his ureter or actually put anything down his ureter. So when I do my perk access, I don't necessarily put anything down the ureter itself, just into the renal pelvis and then get your sheath in. So I didn't leave him with a stent and I didn't leave him with a nephrostomy tube either. So it's tubeless for him. So that's nice. If you go down the ureter, then I'd be more inclined certainly to leave a stent. When I do retrogrades, Unless it's a simple diagnostic ureteroscopy, I look up and say, yeah, look, it's a big fat tumor and the kidney needs to come out. If I'm going to do an ablation, I almost always will put an access sheath within the kidney just for a couple of reasons. One is access, but also decreasing the risk of bladder seeding. And then when I do that, I'll usually leave a stent. Ideally, I like to leave a stent with a string so the patient can take it out, you know, three to five days after the procedure. It's just less time it's in there, so it's less discomfort for the patient. It's less time of exposure for the bladder to have seeding. And then, you know, if you do need nephro-U, those are far easier done when patients don't have stents in. Let me ask you, I'm going to switch the topic a little bit, but just a quick question. When tumor in the bladder at the UO, if you have to resect the UO, do you leave a stent or not necessarily? No. No. Never. The, the only time I would is there are some where you get close to probably disarticulating the ureter. And if I get close to that, I'll leave a stent to shore it up. But most times, if it's just really... You're a little ways into that intramural portion. I wouldn't leave a stent. And I would say, I don't recall, I'm sure it's happened. It's a perfect selective memory of an oncologist, but I don't recall, you know, having a problem in a patient where I didn't leave a stent like that. Even if the angle at the end, because sometimes the UO changes the angle and then should I leave it at? Yeah, I still, I still don't. And it's yet to bite me in the rear, but I'm sure someday it will. But yeah, I know I don't because I mean, you know, there's lots of patients who have like J-hooking on the ureters because of, you know, big process or something like that. And they don't normally have a problem, right? And it's like, I know a lot of people when they do cystectomies and they do intracoral diversions, they always trim the ureters because they're worried about them kinking, but they never kink. People get hydro and then the proximal portion gets dilated, but it never kinks off where it blocks off higher because of tortuosity or something. So, you know, I think the ureters are pretty good in that sense that unless you disarticulate it, you're not going to have a problem. Okay, so Patrick, we talk about tumor ablation. So what are other options for low-grade tumors? In terms of, for example, there's, there's the, the gel mito. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I think intracavitary sort of therapies have been around, obviously, for a while with both mitomycin and BCG. And how you give them sort of has been debated. People would put a stent in, they put it in the bladder, and they say, oh, it refluxes up, which, to be honest, I think was always wishful thinking. And vast majority of people, I don't think that really works. And I think data would say it doesn't work either. So that meant you could either put it up there with a ureteric catheter or you could put it into a nephrostomy tube. But then the problem you run into is the dwell time. And the dwell time is just not sufficient. So along comes sort of gel mito and it's the sort of reverse thermal gel. And so that basically, you know, it's liquid at that cold temperature. And as soon as it sort of gets to room temperature into the body, it sort of becomes that semi-solid gel. And so it coats the inside of the collecting system, forms almost like a soft cast on the inside. And then you get chemoablation where you can actually ablate. You don't even have to resect the whole tumor. Um, and in the Olympus trial, you know, not all patients had their tumors completely resected. 
But because of the reverse thermal gel product properties, over time, when the urine comes in contact with it, it sort of breaks it down to liquid again and then dissolves out and you, you pass it through the collecting system. So it's a way of basically keeping the mitomycin there longer and creating, I think, a better coating effect. It's a very smart idea, I think. And I think in certain cases, it works very well. I've used it in a number of patients. In some patients, it's worked really well. In some patients, it doesn't work as well. You know, why that is, is a little hard to predict. In the trial, I think almost exclusively, it was administered retrograde. In practice now, almost exclusively, it's administered antigrade. I think just for most people's workflow, it's much easier. I think anecdotally, people find it's less risk for sort of ureteric obstruction when you give it antigrade. There is a uh, registry, a post-trial registry that is going on that will sort of look at that a bit more closely. And it's indicated for low-grade disease. That said, there is a publication, and I forget who the first author on it is. I know Wade Sexton and Moffat was on it, and then I think Katie Murray as well. But basically, this was in patients who had sort of imperative indications for even for high-risk disease. So they give it to some high-grade patients. So, you know, people say, oh, it's only for low-grade. If you look at high-grade patients, you know, those intracavitary agents, BCG and mitomycin, have been used before. There's a meta-analysis that shows, you know, the TAT1 on biopsy, upper tract, high-grade disease. If you use mitomycin or BCG, they're both equivalent. It's hard to imagine that gel mito, the thermal gel, is going to be worse than regular mitomycin, which is equivalent to BCG. So I think, if anything, it may be better. Whether or not it's good enough, probably not in patients who can afford to have their kidney taken out. But in those patients that really don't want to go on dialysis, it may be an option. We'll see. There's no data to support that yet. So that's something I think that's a work in progress. And you mentioned the integrate form of, of treatment. So you have these patients have an aprostomy, you shoot it in, plug it until next week. Yeah. Yeah. So you shoot it in, plug it up. At our center, they get the nephrostomy too, put in by the radiologist. Um, and then I think it's about the next week they come back and they get the measurement done. So they get a uh, integrated nephrostogram. We measure it and then we basically administer the first dose. You know, I always tell them that'll be the longest visit they'll have. I and mean, it's still, you know, really 10 minutes at most. And then when they come back for the subsequent treatments, they always seem kind of amazed. They're like, that's it. And you're like, yep, that's it. So it's very easy to administer that way. It's much easier than trying to put an assistoscope and then a five French up there. And then with the timing of this, this stuff will solidify in you pretty quick. So it's, I think it's far easier for us and patients. And as I said, anecdotally, I think people are finding they have less issue with the transient sort of obstruction and things like that. And what other options do a patient with low-grade tumor have? So we talked about the ablation, both with laser or chemo. One thing I will say with the laser is you know, there's different laser types. I have no uh, conflicts of interest in this. I have no funding or anything like that related to the uh, different laser companies, but I do like the Tholium for these. At our center, we basically got one for the Stone guys, and now the Euro-Onc guys don't want to give it up because it works extremely well. I find it's just much easier from my point of view. The other option is you can do an FOU, especially if you have multifocal, high-volume disease, that's not unreasonable. There certainly are patients that that works very effective. And you can have segmental urectomies. It's not unreasonable as well. And then if you have you know, older, frail patients, there is a subset of these lower grade, lower risk sort of superficial diseases that, you know, realistically you did nothing. They're actually not going to progress or go on to cause the patient market problems. 
So, you know, I think in both guidelines, both the AUA and the EAU, I think you can do observation in select cases. And that's not unreasonable. Um, it's just, it's hard to know which are the right patients for that sometimes. So, for instance, I have a lady, she's 75. She was on five liters of oxygen at home. She had upper tract urethral disease, was seen not even in the same state, was given radiation because she was told, look, you can't be operated on, you're too sick. She had radiation. And two years later, she's living in Florida and she basically, her entire upper tract was just full of tumor on the, on the one side and her bladder was half full of tumor as well. So I took everything out of her bladder and then I then took her and did an FRU on her because I didn't think she was too sick to have the surgery done. And, you know, the most noticeable difference afterwards was that she was on less oxygen afterwards and she's like, I feel great. This is the best I've felt in five years. <laughs> like, okay. But. That's one person says, oh, you know, this person shouldn't have surgery, they're way too sick. And another person says, yeah, look, it's not a problem. So that's difficult to sort of really say who's the right candidate for that. And that's a lot of sort of shared decision making. But no doubt there are some patients that that probably is the right thing to do. So high volume disease will be one of those patients that never for you, even if it's low risk. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, you know, if you have, if the whole thing's just chock full of tumor, it's only a matter of time before that becomes high grade and becomes a bigger problem, probably. Yeah. And then you can imagine in those patients, you know, what are you going to do? Laser their entire kidney in your order and then give them chemoablation and then it's going to come back anyways. So. And right now, what's your, your workflow or, or your algorithm in terms of low-grade tumors? Yeah, so most low-grade patients, I mean, they come in, you know, you don't necessarily know the low-grade, but you have suspicions for some of them. You do the ureteroscopy for... You do your washing, and then you do a retrograde, and then you do a complete pan ureteroscopy with a flexible. And then if it's just in the one area, then I'll put an axial sheath in. I'll treat that after I take a biopsy. Most times I like to use the stone baskets for the biopsy. It's, you know, classically a big problem with upper tract is getting a good biopsy. But I think there are ways, if you have an axial sheath in, I like to use the stone basket in to basically evulse it off and not shear it in the scope, but shear it off just with the uh, basket, and you can get some pretty good specimens like that. Basically, when you take it out, if you don't see it readily, you don't have enough. So, you know, sometimes you'll have to go and get more. There are some flat sessile lesions. Those are harder. Then you're going to need to get some like a piranha that can bite into the tissue a bit more. But a lot of these sort of big frondular ones, you get a big basket, you can pull off a chunk of that. It means less to ablate afterwards. And then I ablate them usually with a thulium, and then I'll leave a stent. I'll give them a single dose of gemcitabine post-op in the bladder, and then I'll have them take the stent out three to five days later, and then I'll come back and review the pathology. If it's low-grade, then we say, okay, look, we'll go and take a look in three months and see. If they're clear at that point, then we just watch them with a combination of imaging and repeat ureteroscopy. If it comes back at three months, we'll retreat them, but then we'll offer them sort of gelmido afterwards. And the gems are in the bladder afterwards is just for prevention, any, any seedings in the bladder. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think the longer people, upper tract, they realize that sometimes the lower tract recurrences tend to be more of a nuisance than anything else between these patients. Again, I'm going to ask a little bit about the bladder. Are you using Gemstar also in patients with low-risk cancer? Yeah. And when low-risk, even the high-risk patients, because you don't know until you get the pathology back. So you just, kind of like a 2-RPT, you give it to pretty much anyone. And, you know, with the gemcitabine too, I think, compared to the classic mitomycin, I think it's even easier. It's cheaper, lower side effect profile, works better. So I'm a big fan of it. We use it actually at the time of nephro 
So, you know, there's the Admit C trial where they gave it sort of two weeks out. I usually, on my nephew use, take the catheter out at post-update two or three. So we give it actually at the time of the OR, time of surgery. And that way, when they leave the hospital, they don't have any catheters or drains or anything like that. Cool. Good to know. I'm going to start using that. And talking about the thelium, why did you make the change? I mean, you saw it was less bleeding, it was just faster. What made you change? Like I said, they bought it for the endo guys, and it happened to be at the surgery center, and I think there was an issue with it. And so I was like, oh, we have the thelium. I'm like, okay, let's try that and try that. Because I'd heard from some other people that it worked pretty well. And um, once you go to thulium, you'll never go back, I don't think. I think it's pretty exceptional. I've talked to some colleagues and they're like, yeah, you know, it's good, you know, just good. And I was like, I don't know what planet you're on. To me, it's the worlds of difference. I think it works exceptionally well for this indication. So I use it for all my upper tracks if I can. And Patrick, so let's talk about the high grades. So for patients with high grades, what are the options? So... Everyone is trying to preserve renal function, I think, more and more, and I think rightly so. That said, there are limitations, right? So, you know, big tumors, multifocal high-grade, nodal disease, probably no role for it in those cases. I think very selective, unifocal, papillary, probably not in the order, but more so than the kidney. I think there are rare select cases where ablation can make sense, and certainly that's the guideline stance as well. But the vast majority of patients with high-grade disease probably do not have unifocal, probably do not have a less than 1.5 centimeter type tumor, those sorts of things. So most patients aren't going to fit the criteria for that. What I do see a lot more of is, and probably because the center we're at, I see a lot of patients who have solitary kidneys, rather functional, or they've had a kidney removed for another reason. And so then it's like a question of dialysis or kidney sparing. And that's, like I said before, that's a little harder of a, uh, a movable uh, point for them, right? If you're 75 and you're going to go on dialysis, you're going to be on dialysis. And, and the healthcare outcomes for patients that age who are not healthy to begin with on dialysis are not fantastic. So, you know, are you losing a lot if you can effectively treat them with kidney sparing surgery? Maybe not. But again, it's a sort of shared decision making. You know, I tell them, look, from a cancer point of view, your best option is having your kidney removed. And I said, but, you know, I, I get that you may not want to be on dialysis. I usually talk to them also about the benefits of peritoneal dialysis over hemodialysis too. And, you know, the long-term health outcomes are better with that. So sometimes in those patients, when we do the nephru, we'll actually have the PD catheter placed at the same time through one of the port sites, kind of. It gets tunneled, but, you know, it's just one less thing, one less barrier for them to get onto PD versus hemodialysis. But again, those patients who don't want to go on dialysis, you know, I will give them, I will treat them with the thulium endoscopically. Six to 12 weeks later, I'll bring them back and I'll repeat treat them a second time. Even if I think, hey, I did a great job the first time around, there's no way there's anything going to be left. I still go back in and I still retreat them. And then I will give them intracavitary therapies. And is there a patient that, assuming that they can go safely, I don't know for you, is there a patient that you will do a segmental uterectomy or resection in a high-grade patient? Yeah, if they've got distal disease, so you know, bottom third of the ureter, good bladder, that's debatable. I've done patients who have had prostate radiation before, and they can be fine. And so those patients, particularly if they're older and have some mild renal impairment, it's a good option, right? The oncological outcomes for a distal segmental urectomy versus nephrium are fairly comparable, if not equivalent. And so you know, you can spare them that kidney. I do 
counseling that they are going to need probably closer monitoring as far as their upper tract and cystos than, you know, if they had the whole thing out. And they're also going to have a stent, which they're going to need to have taken out down the road. And they're also going to have a cath left in longer after. You know, if you do a bore flap, I'll leave the catheter usually at least a week anyways, in most cases. But I mean, if you're preserving the kidney, right? Yeah. I mean, for those patients, I would say if you gave them the choice, most of them will say, hey, yes, I'll take the distal urethrectomy and, and keep my kidney, yeah. And how important is the bladder cup when you're dealing with these patients? So I think that depends on where you trained to some degree. I will say that, you know, where I trained in Toronto and stuff, I mean, it was blasphemy to not take a proper cup. And I think that's true, right? I mean, the data shows is 30 to 50% recurrence rate in the stump. And it's hard to survey that stump. So I don't think you're doing anyone any favors. I will say when I went into practice, you know, at the institution I was in back in Canada, initially when I went back there, we didn't have a robot. So I did the kidney portion laparoscopic and I would do a lower midline incision and I'd do an anterior cystotomy in a form of bladder cuff. Like, you can do it, do it right. Now when I do them all robotically, I still do a cuff. I obviously don't do an anterior cystotomy, but you still make sure you get enough of that cuff, particularly the more distal disease, then I'm more likely to take a bigger cuff. And, you know, with the robot, the nice thing is you can zoom in, you can get a nice view of it. You're using things like a V-lock, you can get a nice closure. You can test it if you want, although I don't think there's any point in testing them, but I would close them. I don't test them. And then I, um, like I said, I take the catheter post up day two or three. And even in older men, it's usually not a problem. In terms of lymph node dissection, for, let's say, a low-risk pan disease throughout the ureter and the kidney, would you do lymph node dissection or, or you do it every time you do an FRU? So that's a good question. If they've got like a solitary low-risk type lesion, it'd be unusual to do an FRU for that. So the low risk is probably going to be unfavorable low risk. I do think that many of those patients who have like a big tumor but it's low risk, you know, when you take that out at the time of an FRU, there is good data that a large number of those patients are upstaged at the time of an FRU. And, you know, those ones that are big, bulky, low-grade tumors, when you take out the whole thing, you will find high-grade in them. And that's what I think the risk of progression recurrence comes from. And so in those cases, I would say if it's high risk, you would do it in the lymph node section. So just because it's 15, 20% higher grade, you know, you're not going to do it. So I sort of err on the side of doing it. I think when we do these robotically, the paracaval and periorotic dissections are very easy to do without very much morbidity. So I think there is a benefit to it. So yeah, I do them almost any time I do an FRU, I will do a lymph node dissection. Yeah. And how about neoadjuvant chemotherapy? So... I think we tend to flip-flop a lot into this back and forth. When I was a medical student way back in the day now, I was fortunate to be involved with some research with Bill Wang at NYU, and I was at MSK as a student at the time, and um, we looked at that, you know, how many patients were candidates for neoadjuvant chemo before versus after an FRU, and, you know, the number that our candidates drops way off. And then, you know, people have argued, well, there's no good evidence for it in the neoadjuvant setting because it's all extrapolated from bladder. And then, you know, PAUC comes out and shows good evidence in the adjuvant setting for both cis and carbo. So, you know, the best evidence is in the adjuvant setting. But, you know, when it comes to urothelial and certainly in bladder cancer, I am a big proponent of neoadjuvant chemo. I'm not a big cystectomy upfront guy. I really believe that neoadjuvant chemo and systemic therapy really benefits those patients. So I kind of felt that way for upper tract as well. That said, we have a significant problem, and we've always had this problem of really accurately staging these patients. And, you know, even with imaging modality and biopsy and cytology, we still don't have very accurate ways of doing that. 
So that's a big problem. So either we need to get better at that, or we need to have less toxic treatments that we can give in the neoadrenaline space. And I think what's going to happen, most of the efforts have been in sort of how do we get better at sort of knowing who's the right person to give neoadrenaline to. But I think what's going to happen is, and you're seeing with the recent presentation at ESMO in the metastatic urothelial setting of immunotherapy and fortimab, that obviously had remarkable results. Um, Keynote B15 is a study in bladder cancer patients with neoadjuvant gemcis, or I should say perioperative immuno in, in fortimab. That closed, I think the last patient was crewed like four days ago internationally for that study. So we'll see what the results are. The primary outcome for that, I think, was overall survival. So it's going to be a bit of time before we see that. But I think that's going to change standard management as well. There currently is not a trial that I'm aware of looking at this in upper tract, but I'm sure it will be forthcoming. There was a proposal of a trial to look at this single center. I think it was Cream Chamey who was going to do it, but that has not started recruiting patients yet. So I think what will end up happening is we'll give them a less toxic treatment with the IO and Fortimab, although certainly in Fortimabs, many patients can get side effects from that. But I think that's what we'll start treating people with, and I think we'll start doing it on a more routine basis now than what we used to do. Do you think that maybe every high-risk patient will get some sort of treatment prior to surgery? I think when the results on the B15 it, and I don't know, right, because, you know, we don't know, but my suspicion is that that's going to be a positive trial. With that, or with someone doing the trial in upper tract, I think we're going to start using that more in the upper tract neoadrenaline or perioperative space, and I think that will push a lot more patients to get treatment beforehand. I currently use it in patients that are younger, healthier, and that I'm suspicious of, right? So I had one gentleman who had a sort of a more bulky distal tumor, and you know the fat around the distal ureter was a little stranding. I was like, you should get neoadrenaline chemo. And he probably had a T3 disease. And then at the time of his nephro after getting chemo, he had T0. So his long-term outcome now is probably much better than it may have been if I'd taken it out of his T3. So I do use it in select patients. It is in the guidelines. So I think you either give neoadjuvant or you give adjuvant or you pick and choose a bit. I think one of my biggest concerns with giving the adjuvant before is that you know, many patients can't get cisplatin. And, you know, I will say I was guilty of saying that carboplatin was essentially pixie dust. Now, you know, the PAUT trial and there's some other studies that are coming out that show that carb was probably not as useless as we once maybe considered it. It's actually pretty decent. Um, it's not nearly as weak compared to cisplatin as I think we traditionally have viewed it. So I still think that that is effective treatment in, in patients in the adjuvant setting. And we're doing the neoadjuvant. You guys are using mainly the same thing that you're doing for bladder in terms of how many treatments, how many doses. Yeah, so I think based on the powders, the four cycles, sort of like neoadjuvant tradition. I think in bladder, you know, adjuvant therapy was really six cycles, but in the powder, it was four. So, you know, less toxicity made for patients. That was always a good selling point for why to do neoadjuvant in the bladder space was that you don't have to get four instead of six cycles. But yeah, we use four in the adjuvant setting. If they've had chemo before, then you can also use the immunotherapy in the adjuvant setting too with nivolumab. So, you know, those are all options. I think we cover mainly most of the guidelines. The last thing that they mentioned is the, the follow-up. And I guess it depends on what you decided to do on these patients. So let's talk about the nephro-U. I have a patient that you did a nephro-U. What's going to be the follow-up? Yeah, so then I will risk stratify them based on their final pathology. So those patients with worse disease who get adjuvant, I still have a tendency for holding on to my patients a bit. I like to make sure that they're doing okay. So I oftentimes will arrange the imaging 
and they'll end up getting more chest imaging than someone who has a PT0 in the long term as well. But, you know, if you've got bad disease, I'm going to see you, you know, at three months with repeat imaging, including a cysto. And pretty much any time you see me in the follow-up, you're going to have a cysto when you come in and keep an eye on the bladder. If you have better pathology, I'm still initially going to see you more frequently and then over time scale you back a little quicker. But most of the sort of the guidelines, I think, are sort of the same way. They sort of say the follow-up is dictated a bit by your sort of disease. And for patients that had ablation, uh, do you do ultrascopies in those patients or you just go by imaging and cytology? I alternate a bit and it depends on which risk group they fell in, right? So the low risk group are going to get less ureteroscopies and less imaging. The higher risk group obviously are going to get more. Those high risk patients, I'm probably going to do more ureteroscopies, but they're still going to get imaging as well because with the low risk patients, the concern or the, the risk of recurrence is, is sort of local. Right. And so you want to look at the lining of the, of the collecting system. But in the higher risk patients, you have two risk of recurrences or progression locally, but also things like nodal disease um, and metastatic disease. So, you know, the reroscopy looks very nicely at the collecting system, better than the CT does, but it doesn't look at your nodal disease. So in those higher risk patients, they're going to get both reroscopy and imaging when they see me. Good, good. So, Patrick, anything else we miss? I, I think we covered pretty much everything. A and any other comments you want to add? Anything you want to say? I think one of the things I really liked in the guidelines actually was the standardized reporting. So they had in the guidelines, they have a sort of standardized sort of checklist for how you should report your ureteroscopic and your endoscopic findings, which I think is good for a number of reasons. One, it makes sure that you do all the things you should do. Two, I think it's a detailed but inefficient way of taking a detailed sort of account of what you dealt with. And that way, if you or a colleague or some other practitioner ever has to sort of scope these patients, they know exactly what they've had done and what the problem was and where it was. And I think from a trials perspective going forward, that will make it much more robust, the data we have in those trials as to, you know, what type of disease these patients truly had. So I, I like that uh, standardized reporting that they had. And then I do like the sort of the risk, the overall risk stratification. I, I think it's pretty pragmatic as to how to split patients up. You're in Gainesville. If we want to send patients to you, just go to the website. How, how do we do that? Yeah, I mean, we have a nurse navigator, Lindsay Rantries, so she handles all the referrals. Currently now, we have essentially five uro-oncologists that deal with upper tract. Leeming Sue is the chair of the department. So he sees upper tract. Paul Crispin, who many people would know, who has been you know heavily involved with clinical trials and cooperative group trials and industry trials, and has done some nice work in both bladder and upper tract. He's probably the next most senior person. The reason I came to Gainesville for him, great colleague, great mentor. And then just this summer, Jason Joseph, a former fellow of ours, has come back, got recruited back, and. Dr. Tarek Benadir, who is a uh, Canadian from Toronto like me, and then uh, was at Cleveland for his fellowship. He's also joined us. So all five of us do upper track currently. So there's a lot of volume. So, Patrick, thanks for being back table. I really enjoyed this talk, and thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. 
you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Devante Delbrun. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.